Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 9th of February, 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson. Myself, Brian Gerrish. We're delighted to be joined by Alex Thompson, bringing us Eastern approaches from the Netherlands. And um, we've also got Debbie Evans joining us as UK Column Nursing Correspondent. Okay, let's get straight on with uh, Keir Starmer then. And uh, well, we have a bit of video here from uh, Resistance GB, of course, always on the scene whenever these types of uh, things happen. But uh, a group of uh, demonstrators uh, managed to catch up with Keir Starmer on Monday. Uh, and uh, well, this has caused all kinds of furore, as we're about to see. Um, so there he is, surrounded by the police. He's eventually bundled into a car uh, and uh, well, he clearly was uh, in massive danger there, Brian. Well, if the public get anywhere near these individuals, they're very, they're very scared. And we've got a little clip uh, in just a moment where Sadiq Khan is uh, talking about uh, threats to him, and we've got Debbie to thank for that. Well, let's have a, let's have a look at that clip then. I'm sorry. Is it safe for politicians to walk around the streets of London right now? No, uh, I've got outside the studio uh, five police officers all armed, uh, keeping me safe because of threats to my life. Uh, Keir and David, uh, Keir Starmer and David uh, Lamy, were walking from the Ministry of Defence after receiving a briefing about Ukraine, walking back to their offices in Parliament. They were threatened. One of the officers uh, protecting Keir Starmer uh, was one of my police protection officers. It shouldn't be the norm. Uh, that politicians have to have uh, uh, protection to look after them. I think, though, by the way, I think words are consequences. Uh, you know, when you're on the dispatch box uh, in the House of Commons, when you're the Prime Minister, and you are normalising conspiracy theories, not only are you distracting from serious allegations of you yourself breaking the law uh, with bring your own booze, but also you are normalising far-right theories, endangering the lives of not just uh, politicians that are alive now, we know, I'm afraid, uh, Sir David Amos. We know, I'm afraid, dear friend of mine, Joe Cox, lost their lives. Another dear friend, Stephen Timms, almost lost his life as a result of stabbings. We should be cognizant of the consequences of uh, our words. I don't live in a society, Susanna, where I can't mix and mingle with ordinary Londoners. You know, and, uh, and that's, uh, if we get to that stage, I think we'll ruin it. Can I just check something that you said in your reply to Susanna's question? Did you say that you have five armed police officers, all of them carrying guns? Protected five. Uh, I, yeah, I can't go into details of the sort of protection yeah. that I have, but yeah, uh, that's the same ring. Uh, where you see, that is if you'd said that on an interview 25 years ago, um, on on the previous episode of this program, we think you were fantasising. You have to have five armed police officers wherever you go. Right? What an invite! Shocking. Sadiq um, Khan, we appreciate your time this morning. Uh, stay safe. Everyone should stay safe. And you, your right words have consequences. But let's not let off the hook the people who harass and abuse uh, people in the street. Absolutely. You know, yeah. protest is legitimate. Harassment, abuse, abuse and threats are threat. yeah. totally unacceptable. Yeah. Sadiq Khan, thanks very much indeed. Yeah. Stay safe. Stay safe, Brian. Stay safe, stay safe. Well, it, uh, of course, he said it all. The reason it wasn't happening 25 years ago was because politicians, at least some of them, were doing their job. They were certainly telling the truth from time to time. And they simply were getting out and mixing with the public and their constituents. This, this lot of um, white feather agents uh, are just terrified of going anywhere near a member of the public who might challenge them and shock horror, shout at them, possibly, uh, Mike. That could be 
that could be jeopardizing their safety. Uh, well, indeed. But of course, there's reference there to far-right conspiracy theories. Uh, we'll come on to that in a little bit in a second. But if, where, where's the accusation coming from? Well, the accusation is coming from the fact that Boris Johnson stated in Parliament uh, that uh, Keir Starmer you know, was somehow involved with the, uh, the non-prosecution of Jimmy Savile, the serial paedophile, while Keir Starmer was uh, the, in charge of the Department for Public Prosecutions. And of course, that situation did arise on Keir Starmer's watch. Uh, as we've said before in this program, uh, other, other colleagues from the Department for Public Prosecutions have denied that Keir Starmer was in any way involved in the actual decision about whether uh, Savile would be prosecuted or not. But it's, it was Keir Starmer as the head of the Department for Public Prosecutions, his, his culture, uh, that uh, that he was responsible for, so he had responsibility. But anyway, the the point here is it was Boris's comments in the House uh, which started all this furore about far right conspiracy theories. Um, so let's just have a quick listen to what Lindsay Hoyle, the Speaker, said about this uh, yesterday. Before we start today's business, I want to say something about the disgraceful behaviour yesterday that was directed at the right honourable member for Holborn and St Pancras and Tottenham. I deplore the fact that members of this House were subjected to intimidating and threatening behaviour while simply doing their jobs. I know the whole House will join me in saying we stand with our colleagues in condemning the behaviour they and the police experienced. While I do not comment in detail on security matters on the floor of the Chamber, Steps must be in place to keep passholders secure as they enter and leave the parliamentary estate. I have requested a situation report from the Metropolitan Police via our security team on how this incident occurred. I understand that arrests have been made following yesterday's incident and so it would be appropriate to not comment in detail. I know it's been reported that some abuse was directed to the right honourable member, the leader of the opposition yesterday, related to claims made by the Prime Minister in this chamber. But regardless of yesterday's incident, I made it clear last week that while the Prime Minister's words were not disorderly, they were inappropriate. As I said then, these sorts of comments only inflame opinions and generate disregard for the House, and it is not acceptable. Our words have consequences, and we should always be mindful of that fact. And I will not be taking any punch for it. So words have consequences, Brian. Isn't that exactly what Sadiq Khan said as well? Exactly the same words. Words have consequences. The same narrative. Uh, are we getting a common narrative across the media from different uh, members of the political establishment? What did he say? Um, while simply doing their jobs. Surely the problem here is that they're not doing their jobs. Uh, they're not doing their jobs to the, the way that the, uh, the public want them to do them. And uh, so, you know, is this really about what uh, words have anything to do with or is it about actions? I think it's more to do with that. But look, let's bring the mail on screen here because this was their headline today. Uh, revealed unrepentant, notorious anti-vax mob who hurled Jimmy Savile abuse at Keir Starmer, sparking Labour row over Boris Johnson's stoking hate now chillingly warn all politicians, you aren't safe to walk the streets. So the people that were gathered around Keir Starmer, according to the Mail, are now saying, you're not safe to walk the streets to MPs. And then the second subhead there says, some of those involved uh, were accosted, sorry, some of those uh, involved who accosted the Labour leader are members of the militant group uh, Alpha Men Assemble. 
Now, look, I'm not uh, accusing Alpha Men Assemble of anything here. But what I'm going to say very clearly is that uh, so-called uh, activists on the right of the political spectrum don't have much experience of this. Because if we remember, uh, the four bills, the four acts that are either already passed or are about to be in passed uh, that constitute dictatorship as far as we're concerned, the top of the list is the Covert Human Intelligence Brackets Criminal Conduct Bill. Let's just remind ourselves what that was about. Uh, so uh, the government said uh, that it is a bill to make provision for and in connection with the authorization of criminal conduct in the course of or otherwise in connection with the conduct of covert human intelligence sources. So effectively, this gives carte blanche to certain government agencies to put people into uh, activist groups who then perhaps incite trouble. This is absolutely has happened with left-wing activist groups in the past. It uh, certainly could happen with right-wing uh, activist groups in the future. Uh, and of course, when that happens, it helps to stoke this narrative that the establishment is creating, that, uh, that this is right-wing extremism that we're seeing at the moment. Just to remind everybody of which government agencies are allowed to authorize criminality. Any police force, the National Crime Agency, the Serious Fraud Office, any of the intelligence services, any of Her Majesty's forces, Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs, the Department of Health and Social Care, the Home Office, the Ministry of Justice, the Competition and Markets Authority, the Environment Agency, the Financial Conduct Authority, the Food Standards Agency, the Gambling Commission, they're all allowed to authorize criminality by their agents in the gathering of covert intelligence, in inverted commas. Um, so just coming back to this mail article again, reinforce this again, there is I find the uh, the term militant group aside alpha men assemble as well possibly offensive. It could be derogatory. It could be libelous. I don't know, but it it is certainly implying uh, right wing extremism. And if people don't get this, I just urge everybody once again: if you have no, if you haven't read this book by Joe Boyd, "The Road to Kill the Bill." Now, Joe Boyd comes from activism and environmental activism, anti fracking activism. He's coming from the left of politics and therefore has a lot of experience of this kind of thing. Read this book. If you don't understand it, you won't understand the kinds of headlines we're seeing at the moment. And also remind everybody to read Ian Davis's article on the UK column website, The Online Radicalization Myth. Yeah, and I'll just come back to the Daily Mail, Mike, because the Daily Mail, like the other newspapers like the BBC, are not getting out on the streets and talking to ordinary people who are concerned about what's going on. They're not talking to the parents of vaccine-damaged children. They're not talking to people who've lost their jobs as a result of lockdown. So we see that the press and the BBC, the wider media, simply not engaging with the public and then publishing articles where anybody who dares stand up and speak out is insulted as being some sort of extremist. The Daily Mail, of course, uh, many years ago was the one that took all of the uh, background work from the UK column on the pernicious political charity Common Purpose, printed 11 pages, but didn't even mention the source of the material. So it's time now that the politicians are called out, of course, when they're lying and not doing their jobs. It's, it's time when the media are called out, when they're being offensive to ordinary people. Uh, could I just ask Alex if you've got any thoughts on that little segment? 
I think that's the key point you made there, Mike, for those who are only experienced with British agent provocateur is that um, there are precedents in other Western countries for a preponderance of these agitators to be uh, pseudo right wing groups. And people are perhaps not mindful of that if they've only grown up seeing, for example, the agitation within the mine workers ranks in the 1980s and similar um, uh, provoked and, and uh, uh, and created situations. Uh, two countries that spring to mind in this regard are the United States and Germany, where the FBI and the Constitutional Protection Agency, respectively, have a long history of concentrating on building up so-called militias. Um, Ambrose Evans Pritchard, latterly the Daily Telegraph's correspondent for European Continental and Economic Affairs, was the Beltway correspondent in Washington in the 90s and wrote perhaps the definitive book on this. I think it's called The Strange World of Bill Clinton. Um, and it's, it's one of just many books from the 1990s onwards that traces how the US, in the, so a representative of the Anglosphere, and he also writes in other books about Germany doing it as a representative of the continent, have made long inroads into uh, pr providing fake patriotic militia groups. So there's no reason why it can't come to Britain. And people ought to be doubly, triply suspicious of any so-called right-wing reactionary or patriotic movements that suddenly spring up with violence. Yes. Okay. Well, let's uh, move on, Alex, to um, to Canberra. We're grateful for um, a correspondence that's re reached us from a viewer in Australia uh, called Tanya, and it's given us some context on what's going on. That There seems to be quite a ferment at the moment in Australia and indeed in New Zealand, where there are uh, something is something like a citizen's arrest warrant is out for the Minister of Health on regard to dax vaccine damage. So we're going to try to follow that from New Zealand. But for Australia for today, uh, this is nearly two weeks old now, uh, an open letter uh, coordinated by the airline pilot Graham Hood, known as Hoodie in his movement, uh, has been sent to the Prime Minister at federal level, Scott Morrison, Anthony Albanese, the leader of the opposition, and the Speaker of the Australian Lower House, the House of Representatives. And the covering shot here shows that uh, these this is the statement of, of grievances, and they have a list of demands, which are eight in number. So if you tap that again, you will see fairly similar to what's been going on in Canada and indeed the Canadian and Australian truckers um, convoys have had a lot of cross-fertilisation so there's, there's no surprise that the, the demands are quite similar but in the Australian variant we could call this uh, something like the, the most spontaneous and broad-based of the of the demands from the people uh, assembling in the Canberra, the federal capital. Uh, the demands are to end the state of emergency uh, pursuant to the Biosecurity Act to end all COVID vaccine mandates, to take action to ensure that all internal borders in Australia remain open, to ensure that there is fully informed consent required by all parents and guardians before their children are jabbed, reject any moves towards a society based on digital identity, to establish an independent federal investigative body to investigate misconducts during COVID-19, to reinstate and compensate those fired because of jab mandates, and to institute a moratorium on uh, prosecution of all registered medical practitioners who have been silenced by their uh, code of uh, ethics or their employer. And the signatories include a couple of representatives of the Australian First Nations or Aborigines, um, as well as Captain Hood and two other uh, mainstream uh, Australian uh, campaigning figures. So let's, from a, a long video which has reached me, let's listen to a couple of minutes of Captain Graham Hood 
getting into some detail on the constitutional demands. And you'll hear that the two points he's making relate to the the, um, the, the confidence trick that has been paid, played on the Australians. Uh, a lot of people know about the mid-1970s uh, constitutional coup with the Governor-General, um, the sovereign representative back then, um, effectively cancelling the government and removing Gough Whitlam, the uh, duly elected Prime Minister. Uh, but what the contention of Captain Hood and others is, is that since then, the Commonwealth of Australia and the concept of the crown and the coronation oath uh, has been sidelined in favour of a new parliament uh, opposite the parliament, the old parliament building in Canberra where this meeting is happening, uh, where there is no insignia of the crown on display uh, and where the Commonwealth of Australia has given way, uh, given uh, a place to this, this unconstitutional concept of the government of Australia and the Queen of Australia. So let's listen to that and you'll hear him describe why the red flag, the red ensign is being displayed instead of the more usually seen Australian flag. Listen to these words. Our position of authority over government is still law today. The authority of the people has been expressed in law for well over a century under the legal name of the Commonwealth of Australia. Whereas the people of Australia have made this pilgrimage to Canberra, God bless you, and gathered at this Commonwealth Parliament building to recognise and claim our right of sovereignty and to this end call upon the paramount duty of the Crown to all of us. This icon building of the Commonwealth Parliament carries the public notice by which manner the purpose of government is to be carried out, as does a flag upon a ship indicate by which authority it sails the seas, hence the red ensigns. This authority in and over the Commonwealth for everyone to see is the Crown of the United Kingdom by the display of the Royal Coat of Arms and here we can see by which affairs of the Commonwealth is carried out and that is the authority that our foundation law requires. If we inspect the current building of Parliament across the pond, that one, we notice the display of the Crown authority for the Commonwealth is nowhere to be seen. I'm talking about the new Parliament House. The Crown is not on the coat of arms, and this is significant. There is no Crown authority on display at the venue. It's the first indication that the business of Commonwealth does not occur there, so we must ask, must ask what business does the venue of Parliament concern itself with if not the Commonwealth of the people? And the answer to that simply, the business of the Parliament of Australia in contradistinction to that of the Parliament of the Commonwealth, which is you to people. And to be sure that there is further indication of this departure from the Commonwealth, the name under which the executive is known is not the Commonwealth Government, but instead the Australian Government. All of this is taken to be authorised under the authority of the Australian Government and not the Crown, and that is illegal. Neither of these current practices has been allowed by our Constitution for which authority is required to be under the Crown. There exists no Constitution for the Parliament of Australia or the Australian Government. 
We don't have a constitution and we don't have a Bill of Rights. Isn't that obvious? So this is down in the weeds for those who aren't familiar with constitutional affairs, but it is extremely important uh, because the Crown Dominions, what used to be called the White Commonwealth, with the exception of New Zealand, do now have constitutions and bills of rights in place, which follows the uh, self-governing status that was obtained in these realms in 1901. The trouble is, though, that through the 20th century, these constitutions and bills of rights uh, appear to have been enumerated and enacted by statute. But then you see in the Australian example, and I think Captain Hood and his people are closest to, to breaking this but, uh, this this trick, but it it's, seems to have been applied in Canada, for example, as well. You see that uh, when it comes to push comes to shove before the courts, the courts and the government say, well, no, there's, there are these bills of rights on paper, but they don't relate to the de facto uh, government that's over you, which now calls itself the government of Australia, and your head of state is supposedly the Queen of Australia, a title which separates her from her coronation oath. Uh, so the concept of the Commonwealth is all important. Some of the founding US states, Massachusetts and Virginia among them, call themselves Commonwealth for this very purpose. It means that the people are sovereign over their government, and the government obeys them. Uh, if you remove that from the equation, you have uh, effectively a corporate government installed. Uh, and Alex, so if you want to sorry, watch... Alex, sorry to interrupt you, but but that is basically the argument over Keir Starmer, right? Because because this, the, Lindsay Hoyle was saying, uh, you know, while he was just going about his business, trying to do his job, but they're not doing their job. They have become something else, something other than what they are supposed to be. And this is this is really the key point. We're talking about how are we going to be governed? The, the, there is a, a pseudo role of Her Majesty's loyal opposition leader thereof, right? and uh, just as there are uh, very real roles of the Crown Ministers, I say pseudo because uh, these roles are not supposed to have any place in the House of Commons. And this is by treaty. This is by the Act of Settlement and the Act of Union. We have probably a whole series of articles forthcoming about this. The only constitutional job of a Member of Parliament in any English-speaking country at least, and in fact all Western democracies really, the only role they have is to represent their electors. They are not to take so-called emoluments, paid positions from the government. Uh, if they do that, they revert their direction. And particularly at the level of Sir Keir Starmer or a government minister, they are facing the people and their own party and saying these are the orders from the centre. So they're not going about their constitutional business, uh, going to receive briefings from the Ministry of Defence on the next war with Russia. No, that's not their constitutional role at all. Uh, their constitutional role is one and only, and that is to stand up in Parliament to say no to overreach by government ministers, for example, on matters of taxation and war. Now, if you want to watch the whole of these speeches by Captain Hood and his associates, uh, the best video to go to is this one here on the Aussie Novaks channel on YouTube entitled Canberra Parliament House Rally Speeches in Full. On screen at the moment is a comment by our own viewer, Tanya, uh, British-born, I believe, who's been there. She was very, very inspired by it and has given us some good updates. I expect there'll be more. Um, there's, this is something like it. There's Tanya uh, posing at the old government, uh, sorry, at the old parliament building. And there's, there is a still I took from a rather triumphant moment. I think we'll be seeing the whole of this in extra time in a video where the people uh, uh, actually went to the governor general's um, uh, uh, mansion. He appear, apparently seems to have gone walkabout, if you'll pardon the Australian pun. He hasn't been located for several days. Uh, he, he was given a set of demands, whether it was the same as that first open letter I opened the segment with, I don't know. Uh, but anyway, he's scarpered several days hence, 
and the protesters managed to put up the red ensign, which they can, to their, for their intents and purposes is the constitutional and original flag of the Commonwealth of Australia and the First Nations flag. Uh, there was some token resistance by police, but they were outnumbered. So uh, by on one reading of the situation, we have an actual people's uprising in progress and the sovereign representative has cut and run. Yeah, uh, that seems to be a common problem these days, doesn't it? Well, because when they come into the spotlight, they suddenly become very frightened very quickly. So thank you very much for that excellent analysis, Alex. Uh, well, we're going to move across to matters to do with the NHS, but let's just remind ourselves of the protests there in uh, Australia to do with all matters, COVID-19 supposed uh, pandemics and lockdown and the, the impact on constitutional matters, constitutional rights. Uh, many ordinary people in that huge crowd in front of the speaker. But of course, we've got many professional people who are now saying that they have had enough of what they regard as lies and spin half-truths by the government over the whole subject of COVID-19 and the vaccination policy. So I'd like to just introduce this clip with a very brave um, GP, NHS GP, called David Cartland, who resigned a few days ago because he felt he could no longer exist in a system which was simply not telling the truth and not supporting uh, basic health care for members of the public. Let's just have a look at this very short uh, excerpt from the video. The full video will go up in the next couple of days. But let's have a look at uh, uh, Dr. David Carter and listen to what he has to say. I'm just going to press you a bit, David, because you, you still haven't given us the key thing. What was the thing that finally broke you and you yeah, said, so this is it, I've got to leave? Yeah, that was, sorry, I went off off, uh, off script there, as it were. No, so, no, 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 it's all on script because there's so much no, to no, talk no. about. But, but yeah, what, yeah. what was it that you got to the point you said, that's it? I've yeah, so it. the one was the NHS, just to touch on that. So that was just absurd. And the way that Sajid had kind of treated, the way that he spoke about my fellow colleagues that were soldiers one day and then they were getting sacked. Moving on, it's kids, simple as that, the kids. Um, you know, we've seen the data, you know, I mentioned that Freedom of Information Act data that shows actually um, the, the, the average age of death from COVID is above the average life expectancy. The people who die of COVID are old, very generally, I can't remember the exact average age off the top of my head. Um, they've normally got multiple comorbidities, that's well understood and well known. They're not fit, healthy people. And, you know, less than 60, you know, we're not looking at the equations, like individual people have different risks. For example, an obese person will have higher risk of diabetes type 2 than the thin, fit, healthy, athletic person. So it came about, I mean, it, it, it sort of pulls on heartstrings when you talk about kids. But I'm talking about anyone that's fit, healthy, you know, good nutrition, do some regular exercise, nothing over the top. They're just not at risk of this disease in any way, shape or form. But the kids has been the one that's really pushed me over the edge because um, the situation that's arisen has been that even in my own surgery, you know, I've been agreed with that the data isn't there. The data isn't there to prove it's A, effective. You're Sorry. talking about safety data uh, for both COVID with children. Yeah, uh, as, in, as in it doesn't harm them. I mean, I spoke to colleagues and asked them, how many kids, how many kids, and I'm talking about hundreds of colleagues in conversation, how many kids have you admitted? Or if they're in an ITU setting or an A&E setting, how many kids have you seen come in with COVID? Um, it's this whole with and from COVID thing, isn't it? Um, and no one can give me an answer more than one or I mean most of them none we haven't sent any so it's not killing kids you know a lot of things get a lot of things get sort of clumped into COVID 
when they've got, you know, rhinovirus, coughs and colds of the season and they get a swab, they're in with COVID. You know, I heard a guy the other day going around the ITU department at the hospital in London saying intubated, unvaccinated, intubated, unvaccinated. And actually the reality of those cases were that they were, they, they had other medical problems. They were intubated. They, were, they weren't vaccinated. That's absolutely true. They were COVID positive from the swabs, yeah. but they were in because they were, for example, um, and again, this might not be fact, uh, but they were in with strokes or step down from surgery or their post-op after their neck of femur fracture yeah. being repaired. So, I mean, to, it's an absolute absurd deception. But, uh, but you are, but to, to, together with the lack of effect of COVID-19 on children, yeah, that's one side of the line. The other side of the line is that there's now the campaign to vaccinate the children yeah. and and vaccine adverse reactions do affect children. Absolutely, yeah. It's a lack of acknowledgement that that's even the thing. You know, it's of course paracetamol can cause a reaction. Anything can cause a reaction. Peanuts cause reactions. So, you know, what I am seeing is, and this is not in personal experience because I, I don't see enough kids to be able to say, but they're just there's no need to be vaccinated. They're not going to be harmed by the disease that you're being vaccinated for. And secondly, you know, even if it was a saline injection they're giving to the kids, a placebo then it's, it's not even worth the pain of sticking the injection into the child um, and the stress that might cause. The safety isn't there. The safe, well, the safety data is there and it's damning. So the safety data is there and what the safety data shows is that there is a risk, there's a danger to the children. Uh, but uh, what Dr. David Cartland goes on to speak about is the fact that when he attempts to talk to colleagues about the real data showing what's actually happening, as opposed to what the government is claiming is happening, uh, it's almost like those colleagues can't hear. Some of them become quite forceful with him. If we could just bring in uh, Debbie uh, on this, because Debbie, you had the pleasure of meeting this very brave GP. It's quite extraordinary that somebody with 10 years training and 10 years experience, an additional degree on top of his uh, medical qualifications, he's forced out because basically he can't work in a system which is not telling the truth and is not protecting people's health. No, exactly, Brian. And um, I think too, uh, I, 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 having spoken to David and spoken to other doctors and nurses, you know, the first thing they say is their Hippocratic Oath, do no harm. And they feel as though they are, um, they are contributing to harm and they can't actually sleep at night. They're being bullied and coerced by colleagues that seem to have forgotten perhaps their Hippocratic Oath and those words, do no harm. Yeah. Debbie, thank you very much for that. Well, we will make sure that people know when the full video is up and there'll be some accompanying text. Uh, but we'd like to say a very big thank you to uh, Dr. David Cartland for his bravery in speaking out. And we know there's already many other NHS professionals who are now coming to him to say they also feel the same. But Debbie, you've been warning for some time about what's really coming in the NHS, a whole culture change, a whole management change the whole style of change in the way that uh, healthcare is provided. And one of the areas that you've been looking at is the uh, NHS long-term plan. We've got some little video, seg uh, correction, we've got some little slide segments here, images, uh, but what can you tell us about the long-term plan? 
So the long-term plan, in essence, is tipping the NHS upside down in a snow globe and shaking it about. So it's going to be transformed, it's going to be unrecognisable. And the NHS long-term plan was originally launched in 2019. And basically every single service that we are now, we have been used to receiving is going to be changed, whether that be for ageing, dementia, cancer, mental health. There's also a mental health long-term plan as there is an ageing plan. And these, this document shows what is coming up, how we will be expected to access our healthcare. Um, will we still have GPs? Probably not. We'll have telemedicine. Will we be nursed in hospitals by, ho by hospital staff? Probably not. We'll be nursed remotely. Will we be in hospital for any length of time? No, the hospital seems to be coming, coming to our homes. And, you know, the news today is that I think there's six million people on the NHS waiting list now, um, expected to rise to 14 million. And so now the NHS long-term plan, what it is to do is to give faster access to healthcare, faster access to diagnostics, and basically patients will have to look after themselves. Um, in 2022, 2023, across to 2024, I believe, personal budgets are coming in. So, you know, are we then going to have an allowance every, every year on how much healthcare we can access? But it seems as though the uh, burden of healthcare is very much being put on the patient now and not on the service. So the NHS long-term plan is a big document. I would, I, I would recommend all your readers and uh, viewers and listeners um, have a look at it because depending on your own personal circumstances, your service will, will be changing in a big way. Yeah, Debbie, I, I actually put a tag on this uh oversight of the long-term plan because it talks about truths it says that there's three big truths and uh, i think actually what's happening in this document is it's putting out a pack of lies and these lies of course are being pushed out um, under the cover of the turbulence in particular around uh, all matters to do with covid19 pandemic but you picked out some key things here this is paragraph 1.38 and uh, 138, uh, what's it talking about? Well, here it is. Over the next five years, the NHS will ramp up support for people to, quote, manage their own health. Now, that sounds reasonable, but it's not quite what it seems. Do you want to just add a bit on that one? Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it really is exactly what it says. And in the plan that the, the responsibility for your health will probably no longer be the doctor as you as you know them now but it will be yourself and you know interestingly the nhs long-term plan it lists and i've written them here heart disease stroke cancer dementia and self-harm as the top five diseases of concern so we can see transformative changes in how we look after ourselves and how we look after ourselves at home using remote technology to give our data to clinicians when we're nowhere near them so you know this is all coming in and, and and it would appear that there's a big agenda as i'm sure we'll talk about with regards to cancer and dementia as well 
Right, Debbie. And if we bring in paragraph 139, then the first thing we see, if I just highlight this when it comes up on the screen, the NHS comprehensive model of personalised care developed in partnership with over 50 stakeholder groups. So are we dealing with the NHS or are we dealing with the pharmaceutical industries or the big AI, AI companies or the genomics companies? We've no way of knowing. And as you were saying, it says here, we will roll out the NHS personalised care model across the country, reaching 2.5 million people by 23-24, then aiming to double that within a decade. So we've got the NHS in crisis. It's being destroyed as we see it, but that destruction necessary in order to bring in this new agenda. And if I bring on paragraph 41, uh, well, we need to take uh, uh, notice of all of this because it says we'll accelerate the rollout of personal health budgets to give people greater choice and control over care, how care is planned and delivered. Up to 200,000 people will benefit from these budgets by 2023-24. This include provision of bespoke wheelchairs and community uh, community-based packages of personal and domestic support. So these are all words to make us feel very comfortable with what's happening, but actually this is the NHS being locked into uh, AI and all matters digital and data very rapidly. Uh, this one goes on to say, with patients, families, local authorities, and our voluntary sector partners at both a national and local level, including specialist hospices, uh, the NHS will personalise care to improve end-of-life care. Uh, that statement I found very, very spooky, I will say that. And it goes on to say, we'll introduce proactive and personalised care planning for everyone identified as being in their last year of life. Well, when is the NHS going to decide that we're in the last year of our life, Debbie? Uh, we're not able to speak about it today, but we've been talking about families who have watched relatives simply being put on end of care path, uh, pathway because uh, the hospital felt that was the thing to do. So are we going to be given a date on which we're going to be disposed of? Well, it certainly looks like that, doesn't it? I mean, how anybody can predict that you're in the last year of life. Um, is, is completely beyond me. So, yes, I would agree with you, sadly, there, Brian. Right. OK. And you've also mentioned cancer, the fact that we're all of a sudden we haven't dealt with COVID, uh, but now apparently the NHS is confident that in the near future it's going to be able to deal with cancer. Let's just have a look at this uh, little video clip on cancer uh, from the NHS cancer expert, Callie Palmer. The long-term plan for cancer will enable us to accelerate all the work we're doing to improve survival and quality of care and quality of life for all those affected by cancer. The long-term plan ambitions are to save 55,000 more lives and a very important part of this is to ensure that we detect cancer earlier so that at least 75% of people have their cancer detected at a very early stage when we can cure them. The long-term plan covers a range of important initiatives from really a fantastic comprehensive screening programme for people to pick up cancer earlier uh, and ensure patients get access to the specialist services they need quickly. Uh, it includes much earlier uh, diagnosis, faster diagnosis, including a new 
28-day faster diagnosis standard for patients, and it includes optimal treatment and care for everybody, wherever they live, regardless of whether they need surgery, chemotherapy or radiotherapy. So optimal treatment and best standard of care throughout the country. One of our initiatives uh, within the long-term plan is something called the Targeted Lung Health Checks. And we're really excited by this um, uh, scheme, which should allow us, um, from the pilots we've already undertaken in Manchester, to pick up many more patients earlier when we can cure their lung cancer. Um, so this has a potential to reach 600,000 people um, and detect at least 3,500 cancers earlier than we do currently, so that we can do the very best for our patients. So fascinating uh, little bit of video, Debbie, because the NHS is in complete meltdown at the moment. People can't get into a hospital for uh, treatment. Uh, they haven't even been diagnosed with cancer. Uh, problems or suspected cancer and yet these people are looking into their crystal ball and saying well don't worry because we've got it all under control cancer is going to be the big thing but we're going to cure it how are they able to make these claims well one of the uh, the reasons i think that they're trying to make these claims is because lung cancer and respiratory diseases costs 9.9 .9 billion a year so uh, this is, is a burden on society, if, if you like. Um, and what they're looking to do, as we've spoken about before, um, and this involves Bill Gates, is his new company, Grail, which are now doing early, early stage cancer tests on healthy people. Because what they're saying is people with cancer aren't normally picked up until stage three, stage four, where they uh, require chemotherapy and radiotherapy. Um, and it can be extremely costly, both emotionally, physically, and financially. So what they want to do is they want to test healthy people to catch them at stage one and stage two in order to be able to cure them. However, as we already know, we have no long-term data on the vaccine. So we don't know whether there's anything within that in safety data that would increase the likelihood of cancer. But what we do know is that one of the antivirals, and, and Mike has spoken about it often, and I keep on about molnupiravir, has been shown to be carcinogenic in mice and never really got past stage one of the clinical trials. So I'm very concerned that at the moment we are seeing cancer rates decrease. Um, that was before the, the, the pandemic and before the backlog. So we were having a really good success rate with cancer. However, now I believe from the adverts that we're seeing one in two on cancer, we're going to see an exponential uh, rise. So it's, it's very, very concerning. And it's also concerning to know, and I, I know we'll come on to this later too, but a company like Deloitte are actually working with um, lung cancer research and they're working alongside Merck. So this is all intertwined. And we should be seeing scanners turning up for breath testing for lung cancer as well. So it's all about fast diagnosis, rapid, rapid uh, acceleration of treatment. Uh, Debbie, thank you for that. I'm going to take the audience through some of those uh, sort of companies involved in, in all of this uh, AI and high tech stuff. Uh, just before we do, we'll bring a smile to people's faces because, of course, Chris Whitty has disappeared from the scene. So the question in our minds has been, where, where's Whitty? 
well, of course, you discovered that uh, he's back on the scene of the Gresham College. So he's busy giving talks. This one, Infections, which use the respiratory route, Professor Chris Whitty, uh, for Wednesday, the 9th of February. So jolly current stuff. Uh, but of course, if we look at uh, the detail on him, uh, you'll see in the bottom here, it says the major cancers and their prevention and treatment are the theme for his second series of lectures as Gresham Professor of uh, Physics. So uh, cancer, cancer, cancer. We haven't dealt with COVID, but all of a sudden cancer's the big thing. And th this is some of the detail of companies that Debbie's been looking into. Uh, here we've got IBST, industry and academia, working together to develop, quote, novel biosensing technologies. So this is all about the data collection around the body. Uh, here's some details about the Institute, the first of its kind in the UK, and a lot of money available for this sort of thing. And here are the stakeholders, Mike, industry and academia working together to develop novel biosensing technologies. Um, here's uh, Professor Richard Luxton. Now, we're not saying this man is doing anything wrong. What we're saying to the public is you need to know what he and his colleagues and other sim similar companies are doing because they are affecting what's going to happen with our, uh, our health and our health treatment in the future. But this is all to do with massive networks of people. And as Debbie pointed out to me some weeks ago, she said, you better pay attention because they're moving ahead with smart clothing, where the clothing itself, perhaps your bed linen or your pillow in a hospital environment is going to be able to pick up and transmit the information. And uh, this one was of interest because it's a patent to do with a certain Mr. Rothschild. Um, and this is a, a model for acquiring and transmitting biometric data back on the subject, Mike, of data and more data and uh, a background to the invention. Now, this is real. The actual um, uh, information about the patent on the screen is real. Uh, but of course, it upset uh, Reuters because they had to do a fact check and attempt to spin public attention away from the detail of what the patent was about by creating a furore around the dates. Uh, 30 seconds, Debbie, because we're getting tight for time. Um, what, what, was, what was the big hoo-ha about in relation to dates? I think the big hoo-ha was really about the date and they were, they were saying, you know, this this was not a, a, a planned, this was not a futuristic scenario. Well, regardless of what it says, it was approved in 2020. And clearly what's in the patent we are seeing in reality today. Yeah, thank you for that. And of course, the proof of the pudding is when we see this coming back into the NHS itself. So this is the Royal Patworth Hospital, which you've highlighted as a very important hospital, particularly to do with matters to do with the heart. And if you get into their own documentation, you can see that here we are heading towards all of this major change and transformation. And what's the key driver? It's not making people better, it's digital information. And Papworth Hospital themselves um, give this uh, a circular uh, route for us because they're also quoting that very NHS long-term plan. And just to come back on to Deloitte that you mentioned a few minutes ago, uh, Debbie, here is their big document, The Future Unmasked, Predicting the Future of Healthcare and Life Sciences in 2025. And um, what are they going to be doing? 
Uh, well, it's this. At the beginning of 2020, healthcare and life sciences companies were on a steady, albeit slow, path towards digital transformation. Since March 2020, however, with the declaration of the COVID-19 pandemic, we've seen the future of digital healthcare accelerate, achieving advances in nine months that would have previously taken many years. So what they're doing here is boasting of the fact that the chaos in COVID has allowed them to push this agenda through. And what they're saying is that healthcare organisations will not be able to revert back. So, Mike, this has got to be premeditated, and they seem to have an amazing insight into the fact that COVID was going to be so good. Here's some of the uh, graphics showing where they're headed. And then lastly, Debbie, just uh, a couple of words on this, really. You've been paying attention to the UK Government Office for Artificial Intelligence. I have, and um, I thought it was interest, Mike, as well, because, like, again, but this is the Alan Turing Institute and fusing with the British Institute. And I didn't even know we had an office of artificial intelligence, but we do. It's huge, and it seems that the UK will be central globally to rolling out AI pretty much uh, through every industry. Uh, well, this is a very good point. So that brings us on to uh, uh, the Right Honourable Jacob Rees-Mogg, who, uh, as a result of uh, Boris's, well, it was described as re reshuffle, not really, but uh, he's been made Minister of State, brackets, Minister for Brexit Opportunities and Government Efficiency. And so what is the main Brexit opportunity that the UK government is seeing at the moment? Well, I believe it is data and big data at that and health-related data at that. Um, so let's just remind everybody that at the end of 2020, the government announced the National Data Strategy, uh, and this was launched by the Department for Digital Culture, Media and Sport. And it's all about basically pulling the teeth of the Data Protection Act to permit the sharing of data on a global basis with the UK as being the global data hub for everything. Um, so uh, let's just have a look at, uh, at a little bit of video because they, they, they thought they would... Uh, let us know exactly who's involved in this. And again, we've got all the stakeholders, Brian, the British Academy, the Action Hampshire, a cast, the Cabinet Office, Community First, Catalyst, Connected Liverpool, all these stakeholders involved in this. So hundreds of colleagues, as they said, all with a vested interest in pushing forward and this And unaccountable policy. to the public. Totally unaccountable yeah. to the public. Okay, Food Standards Agency, okay, Government Office for Science, but we've got uh, a whole host of others. I'm not going to look any more at that, but... Uh, the key point here is they published that. They also uh, uh, published uh, the national, uh, sorry, the data regulation plan, the digital regulation plan, sorry, and so on. But we've got plenty of evidence about how good uh, the UK government's uh, um, data uh, infrastructure is at protecting people's data. So first of all, let's just deal with this one, MIT Technology Review, looking at how the government's uh, use of AI tools really hasn't helped with respect to COVID. But then we've got headlines like this. I'm going back over the last two years. Uh, coronavirus apps were supposed to be the answer to COVID-19. They're not, said Politico. Uh, the Guardian saying, you know, making the point that N NHS X app had to be ditched the first iteration of it because they'd taken the completely the wrong approach. But if you remember what that approach was, uh, NHS X, which is their digital technology section, was attempting to, to require all track and trace data to go to a central uh, server, which of course couldn't cope with the load. Uh, 
but it was all centralized data gathering was what, what they were about in the first iteration. So under pressure, UK government releases NHS COVID data, uh, data deals with big tech. So they were forced to, to, to highlight the fact that they had big deals in places with big tech for gathering so NHS COVID is, data. This is fascism. Yes. Under a health label, it's fascism. Yes. Uh, and then uh, here's the BBC, I think, from 2020 as well. Mm. Coronavirus England's Test and Trace Programme breaks GDPR data law. Now, this is why uh, Rhys Mogg has been given this title, because, of course, the EU is pushing back on the likes of Google and others over the export of data of, from EU citizens to the United States in particular. The UK is attempting to put, position itself as a hub, as I say, which would permit data to be exported to all kinds of countries with no regard for the implications of that. Uh, then we've got the Times here, coronavirus contact traces sharing uh, patients' data on WhatsApp and Facebook. So no data protection here whatsoever. Uh, test and trace being used to harass women, no data protection again. Uh, public vaccination status leaked by NHS booking site. So we've got this history of uh, shoddy, relaxed attitude towards people's uh, data and yet uh, this is going to become one of the key uh, uh, revenue drivers for the, uh, for, for the future. Um, Welsh data breach exposes uh, information of COVID-19 patients and so it goes on. But look, uh, this is going on now. This is being advertised at the moment. Explore all things AI and data at the Digital Health Rewired 2022. So this is an industry uh, conference taking place, uh, Rewired 2022. Digital health, absolutely key to it. And if we want to look at what the NHS is doing, well, here's NHSX, which, of course, as Debbie is, uh, or at least you've, you've made the point in that segment, now part of NHS Transformation Directorate. Uh, but uh, this is the NHS AI Lab. And they've got six, what's that, five programs, the Artificial Intelligence and Health and Care Award, AI Skunk Works, AI Imaging, AI Regulation, AI Ethics. Uh, well, they were talking about this today because... Uh, they have uh, launched, uh, uh, well, the AI Ethics Initiative, uh, but uh, they they are wanting to to try to uh, what's the word a consultation on on uh, the ethics of 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 using AI and, and data collection. Um, so th this is absolutely core to the the entire uh, strategy and policy. Absolutely right, Mike. And the key bit is that the UK is in a particularly good position because of the massive data set it holds via the NHS to take control of this on a global scale. And I know future news programmes, Debbie wants to get into this bit, that they are boasting that the UK is going to be the nation that takes control of all this population data down to when you've been ill, they're going to have all of your medical data, your gene data. It's 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 uh, hidden in plain sight, but it's really serious stuff because ultimately it's private companies controlling it, not governments. Yes, and and Debbie, uh, the implications are huge because if you're talking about personal budgets, uh, then those budgets are going to be based on the data that they have collected about you, about your lifestyle, uh, about your medical history, your life and potential for life insurance is going to be affected by this, and so on. So it is uh, absolutely huge for everybody. Yeah, I mean, it, it will affect everybody. And, and, and I also worry for people that are currently on Department of Work and Pension benefits uh, who receive disability benefits. Will that mean that they don't receive that money, but they receive a personal budget for their NHS care? It looks like we're all going to be paying not just national insurance, but we're going to be paying for our NHS care as how they allocate it to us, probably by social credit scores.
Okay. Right. Well, if you like what we do, yes. is where we are now. So uh, we just want to say thank you very much to everybody at Sporting the UK column. If you're not already with us, please join us. There's the link. And of course, remember that we're there on Twitter and Facebook, brand YouTube, Rumble, etc. So track us down and please share the information. That's why we're doing it. Uh, thank you for everyone. Thank you to everyone who's ordered a hoodie. That's uh, been utterly uh, brilliant. If you've still not got one, perhaps you consider ordering one. Uh, we'd appreciate that. And I want to say a very, very big thank you to our audience who've clearly taken up the challenge because they've started to watch the Medicines and Healthcare Product Regulatory Agency, the MHRA, uh, watch their board meetings. So the views have gone up from a tiny 60 or 70 people suddenly to nearly 1,500. But we want to say it should be millions of people watching the MHRA, uh, MHRA board because it's only by watching and listening to what they actually say that we can make them fully accountable for their blatant lack of due diligence on vaccine safety. But well done to everybody who's watched some of those. If you haven't, please do. And also just I'm overwhelmed with the response that we've had when we asked if there were people who were bilingual, French, English, uh, had a hu huge number of responses. Uh, this is this is a game changer. We'll explain why in due course, but at the moment, we're just going to say thank you to the people who've responded. We will be back in contact. I couldn't get all of you up on the screen, but we've recognised it. And uh, yes, thank you very much indeed. OK, let's move on uh, because, uh, well, yesterday was uh, Safer Internet Day. Um, so uh, it wasn't today, it was yesterday. So this was the graphic they put out. Uh, saferinternetday.org.uk is the place to go for finding out about that. Let's have a look at this. This is from the UK Safer Internet Centre, uh, who are all about helping children and young people stay safe online. Uh, so who's supporting them? Well, we've got uh, uh, children. Stakeholders, Mike. Yes, yeah, stakeholders, Childnet International, IWF, S SWGFL, and so on, European Union, uh, and so on. Uh, but for uh, Internet Safety Day, uh, we had this group uh, supporting them, Nominet, Amazon, Apple, Department for Digital Culture, Media and Sport, of course, uh, Lego, Netflix, Samsung and so on, Vodafone there as well. So uh, because it was uh, Internet Safety Day yesterday, uh, the government decided to tell us all about a brand new aspect of the online safety bill that they're very, very excited about. Uh, so let's have a look at just a quick reminder of what uh, the government says the online safety bill is all about. Well, they say it's all about stamping out illegal and harmful content, including what, well, they define what harmful is. It's not defined yet, but they define what it is. Uh, harmful content may not necessarily be illegal, of course. It's going to tackle suicide chat rooms and threats of rape and kill. If it did that, that would be good. Uh, it's going to force social media companies to stop criminal and extremist activity. But as we've already seen, the people fun. that are being labelled as extremists uh, at the moment aren't necessarily extremists. So this has got dangers in it. Uh, they're going to protect kids from being exposed to online porn and they're going to clamp down on human traffickers. Uh, so Nadine Dorries then, because her name's on this, says we're stopping kids from being exposed to online porn. That's her claim. Uh, and uh, well, what are they going to do about that? Well, we're going to show that in a second. But first of all, here is why that statement is untrue, uh, because their strategy at this point is to make sure that por pornography sites remain as widely as available as possible, no restrictions on them whatsoever, and then to educate children on how to consume pornography safely. Um, and to give uh, an idea of how this works, here is the UK uh, Safer Internet Centre, 
And this is for 11 to 18 year olds. And it's all fun and games, exploring respect and relationships online. So it's not, it's about making sure that- It's a bit of a laugh. No, Brian, you and I were in a pub uh, a number of years ago and uh, on the tables in the pub were leaflets on people, explaining to people how to take drugs safely. And this is the strategy that the British government has taken for, for all these types of activities, whether it's harmful or not, to make sure that you are doing it safely, but make sure you're doing it, you know, in the first place. So anyway, getting back to this, we're stopping kids from being uh, exposed to online porn is Nadine Dorry's claim. So let's look at how they're going to do this. This is what they announced uh, yesterday. Uh, they're going to require age verification, uh, and that might include uh, giving websites credit card information. Uh, and uh, of course, Ofcom are going to be able to find companies for failure to, to uh, comply with this. But age verification is what it's all about. Um, now, naturally, uh, lots of people are, because what was being described in the mainstream press today was that you would have to give your credit card details to Facebook, for example, uh, so that you could access certain types of content on Facebook. Um, well, nobody in their right mind is going to give their credit card details to Facebook. So this is obviously going to create some kind of backlash. But what this is really all about is digital ID because what they're aiming towards is everybody identifying themselves to the platforms. Uh, and we've covered this before, but let's just remind ourselves that what they're talking about is a wallet, a digital wallet, uh, which contains attributes, attributes, pieces of personal information, which might include, if you look on the little graphic on the right-hand side there, your age, are you over 21, uh, for example. But they also said uh, it would include disclosing de details from the government, such as your legal name, date of birth, right to reside, right to work or study, as well as details from other organizations. Now, not all attributes would be given to all organizations, but there's a whole industry being established here. Uh, and here is one of them, uh, Yoti. Digital ID, ID is a force for good, they claim. There's a whole industry being established here to establish people's identities based on a government framework. Uh, and so on. And that seems what this is really about. This is what it's really about. You cynically use children and child safety as the means of driving this through. Yes. It's, it's truly wicked uh, what these uh, politicians are doing at the moment. And then they're running around like scared ch chickens when somebody's uh, brave enough to speak to them in the street. Uh, they're frightened because, of course, they know that what they're doing is wrong. Yes. So, Alex, uh, speaking of Nadine Dorries, uh, license fees, the license fee announcement will be the last. Yes, Nadine Dorries, who's also my parents' local MP, happens uh, to wear another hat as culture secretary, and that is she decides on the BBC, Britain's public service broadcaster par excellence, allegedly. And a couple of weeks ago now, with uh, parliamentary allies of her, such as Brandon Lewis in tow, she was uh, putting the frighteners on the BBC. And so in a tweet here, she said, to great consternation by others, this license fee announcement will be the last. The days of the elderly being threatened with prison sentences and bailiffs knocking on doors are over. Fair enough, well, we could take that at face value and uh, and uh, we could certainly welcome it. Uh, but I think that it's the response by Leila Moran on the next slide that's interesting. Leila Moran is, shall we say, a very colourful figure in the third largest party uh, in the, at, the, at UK level, Liberal Democrats. I know the SNP would protest that, but uh, they're not uh, active around the UK. Leila Moran, of course, uh, is the daughter of one of the movers and shakers of the cultural scene. 
And she speaks for a, a large swathe of the establishment here in uh, enunciating her horror. This is the knee jerk, right? The, the prospect that the BBC will lose its license fee. Uh, how much of what she says here is actually relevant to the people of Britain? She says the BBC and the British Council, which is Britain's soft power organization abroad, are key to Britain's soft power status. This move, that is abolishing the license fee, puts that in jeopardy. For example, the license fee pays for three quarters of the BBC World Service. And what about local radio, like BBC Oxford, local to Leila Moran, vital for our democracy, not for democracy, but for our democracy. And then her punchline, global Britain, which of course is what the uh, what Brexit was sold as enabling, has become little Britain, a rather weedy comedy punchline there. But uh, I was struck by it. Of course, Leila Moran and her um, uh, forebears have, have lived in this bubble of uh, using the people of Britain as the clout to enable cultural change abroad. But it's fairly naked here, the attitude that the plebs just need to pay uh, because the establishment has games to play overseas. Yeah, it's, it's outrageous. Um, I think we need to do some more work on the BBC. We did a big expose many years ago. It's probably time to bring that up to date to show the sheer power of the BBC as an organisation and its close relationship with the security services. Okay, Alex, let's move on to uh, Stamford Hill. For those who don't know London that well, Stamford Hill is uh, fairly central in London and has a conservative Jewish population, uh, Hasidim and Haridim, and nearly a thousand Orthodox Jews of these uh, persuasions came out recently uh, in a repetition of what we saw in Birmingham a couple of years ago, which attracted a lot more uh, notice, where it was largely billed as Muslim parents enraged at the sexualization of their children in primary school. Well, here we see that um, the Jewish Chronicle is covering it. It's entitled Large Stamford Hill Meeting Protests Against, Protests Against LGBT Teaching. Uh, it's that all-powerful agency, Ofsted, the British government's inspector of schools, uh, which has uh, borne the brunt of this uh, annoyance. It's very unusual for such a large number of uh, members of this very conservative Jewish community to come out for such a political meeting. Rabbi Asher Gratt, a spokesman, said it is sadly the compromise approach and the willingness to find a meeting point that strengthens Ofsted's resolve in imposing an alien value system. So he's uh, accusing Ofsted of taking advantage of the conservative Jewish parents' willingness to negotiate. Um, the aim of the meeting was to call on schools to be more strident and assertive. Uh, a number of Haredi schools have been marked down by Ofsted inspectors for refusing to discuss sexual orientation or gender reassignment. These are primary schools, right? And then finally, uh, and I think that's the, the same the same piece as, as uh, circulated. So uh, Brian was following this in Birmingham a couple of years ago, that actually there was a Jewish uh, parents contingent and Christian alongside the more uh, frequently covered Muslim parents contingent. And of course, the uh, many of the mainstream media sources like to portray it as enraged Muslims who can't fit in with modern Britain. Uh, but we see that the Jews are finding a voice too. Uh, staying with education, uh, the British government's Department for Education now has responded to a rather uh, set up consultation regarding those not being schooled at uh, government or private schools. Uh, this is specific to England and Wales. The uh, framework is somewhat different for Scotland and Northern Ireland. Um, but the uh, proposal 
which has been put out in a consultation on what to do with children not in school, had uh, this element to it. Should there be a duty on parents to register their child? LA here stands for local authority. Uh, so uh, the consultation seems to have come up with the favoured uh, response, which is, yes, we ought to require parents in England and Wales to tell their local authority uh, in the way that is standard on the continent of Europe that they have school-aged children who are being homeschooled. At the moment, there is no such requirement uh, not even in Scotland, although it's a bit tighter. And if you tap that once more, you will see a rather remarkable breakdown. Green is yes, so agreeing with the government's friendly position, we must register uh, children. And red is no. Uh, among the responding local authorities, 4% said they didn't want to have registers. Um, but right at the other end of the scale, among the parents and young people who responded to the government consultation, 15% of the three and a half thousand who responded said that they thought it would be necessary or good to have a register at the local council of those who were not in school. And 85% said no. So you can see something of the dynamics shaping up there. Uh, shall I go straight on to the next yes. slide? Yes. There we are. Yes. Um, there is a private members bill which has gone through a couple of stages at the House of Lords and is now in the House of Commons called the Wellbeing of Future Generations Bill. And I'll just mention it briefly because I know we're on the stops for time. But David Scott has frequently covered recently that the Scottish government has decided to become a well-being nation and has never defined the term, even though it was central to the named person policy a few years ago, the state guardian scheme. And you can freeze that uh, if you want to see what the, the title of the bill is. But it starts off a bill to make provision for a public consultation to inform a set of national well-being goals. It is becoming a measurable ad objective of government. It's sponsored by Lord Bird, who half a century ago was a member of the Revolutionary Workers' Party. And Simon Fell, a fairly recent member of the Conservative uh, Party uh, who's been elected to the House of Commons. And just tapping these as we go through them, that you can see that uh, the text of the bill, which is now in the Commons, uh, is that there's going to be a public consultation to be called a national conversation on well-being goals. The next one talks about well-being duties on public bodies. Each public body must carry out sustainable development. Next one says that the Secretary of State, it doesn't say in the bill, the, the bill which one, must take account of UN goals, climate change, the UN uh, uh, Intergovernment Panel on uh, Climate Change, IPCC, well-known body to some. The views of 11 to 25-year-olds must be continuously sought via the youth parliament and other such bodies. Then there is going to be a commissar, although in Britain we uh, we uh, present it somewhat more smoothly and call it a future generations commission. There is to be, says the private members bill, a future generations commission uh, nominated by the prime minister and the devolved uh, prime ministers. Uh, then finally, there is a citizens panel. So we can see the idea of sortition coming to the fore again. There is to be a panel of residents of the United Kingdom for the purpose of providing advice to the Commission on the exercise of the Commission's function. So uh, we can see yet another way in which uh, the, the planning of uh, legislation is being hijacked by anterior and superior objectives, which always relates to the environment, the future, and those yet unborn and so on. Um, somebody sent me this, which fits in well, Le Point, 
uh, has an interview with President Macron's spokesman on his candidacy for the forthcoming presidential campaign. He's standing for re-election. And the highlighted bit in French says, uh, this is the words of Macron's spokesman, we could perhaps pursue the air policy aim, because he was being asked what's the big idea for Macron's next term, we could pursue the aim of redefining our social contract by placing responsibilities uh, before rights and respect for authority. Uh, with regard to social performance. So also, well, that, that's a, a French way of saying uh, your benefits, basically. You have to show respect for authority in order to get your tax money back. Uh, not to be outdone, the Italians yesterday modified their constitution in two articles, and hey presto, a new paragraph's been added to Article 9, which is in bold on the right, uh, which talks about the Republic having a new duty to uh, protect the environment, biodiversity and ecosystems and the interests of future generations. Uh, state law will regulate the modes and form of, look, uh, of uh, caring for animals. Article 41 has also had a couple of phrases inside, inserted into it. Uh, the state can now interfere in private business uh, for a larger number of uh, aims, and the ones in bold which are new are health and environment. Interesting, isn't it? Uh, Giovanni Amendola, one of the clutch of uh, Italian uh, constitutional uh, commentators who are, I think, the world's best at the moment, writes this in a, a book entitled Italian Democracy Against Fascism. He says, fascism does not so much aim to govern Italy as to monopolize the control of Italian consciences. The possession of power is not enough for fascism. It needs to possess the private conscience of all its citizens. It demands the conversion of Italians. Fascism makes the same claims as a religion. It does not prop promise happiness to those who do not convert. It is just highly remarkable how so many Western countries at the moment, uh, apparently from the financial layer behind the governments, I can't see anywhere else that it's coming from, are saying, well, you plebs need to understand that in order to get anything like your own tax money back in the form of benefits, you must promise to obey us and put the collective good first. Uh, how else is this being done other than by financial institutions? Uh, well, well, let's well uh, in a small way, of course, uh, it's it being done through funding of of the stakeholders and so on. So let's just let's just mention this uh, because the government announced this a couple of days ago, but we we didn't put it on Monday's news, so I wanted to put it on this. Uh, this is all about dormant assets. Now, of course, uh, lots of money being raised through dormant assets. What are dormant assets? Well, they are assets which uh, uh, somebody hasn't claimed uh, in the recent time. So uh, they're sitting in a bank account somewhere uh, that maybe been forgotten about or maybe they just haven't been uh, bothered with. Uh, so if we just put that back on for a second. Uh, so uh, what are they saying? Communities and good causes. Well, good causes mean stakeholders uh, across uh, England have been allocated an additional £44 million as part of the £800 million that you can see on screen. So it's all about unlocking £800 million. Uh, and then another £800 million coming as well. So £20 million uh, will enable the Youth Futures Foundation uh, to do what they need to do. 20 million will go to Access, which is the foundation for social investment. Uh, and 4 million will go to FAIR for all finance to accelerate their work. Uh, and already 800 million pounds has been unlocked uh, by this scheme. Uh, and uh, including 150 million pounds that supported the response to COVID-19 pandemic in 2020. Uh, so there's a new bill, uh, here it is on screen, the Dormant Assets Bill. Uh, and that's being pushed through from the House of Lords, uh, but it is government-backed. Uh, and this bill uh, 
allegedly follows a public consultation process. Well, that one completely passed me by. I'm not sure. Uh, that clearly, was advertised widely. Uh, the new bill is currently working its way through Parliament, to say, and it's going to expand uh, the dormant assets scheme to unlock a further £880 million pounds stolen from people's bank accounts. Maybe they've, you know, they have a right to, to claim it back. Well, it's not entirely clear exactly what the process is. Uh, I'm sure there is one, uh, but uh, uh, that's 1.6 billion in total, which is all going to good causes, Brian. But uh, they are the types of causes that Alex has been talking about. Yes, what while you were describing that, my my brain was going back to uh, uh, the creation of citizens activists by the government, where they were using social funds. Uh, and including f uh, funds, monies that people had basically forgotten about uh, in order to pay for the community disruptors and the change agents. And that was uh, through the um, the government's community, uh, uh, what's, what's the word, um, department. Um, I think we need to revisit some of that inf information because this seems to be remarkably similar. Um, right, well, we're out of time, so we're not going to do this segment on on war, as it were. We'll keep that for Friday. But I just wanted to put this on screen because I just thought this was uh, Good Morning Britain this morning. And thank you very much uh, to Neil for sending this through to me. But Alex, uh, try not to laugh too much. The, the lower third there says Biden's warning for Russia. And uh, the subhead on that says Joe Biden warns Russia that if it invades America, then NATO allies will retaliate. Um, Yes, I'm not sure what we can Isn't say. Isn't that about meant that. to be Jens Stoltenberg's job? Stoltenberg is supposed to speak on behalf of NATO. You know, what does Biden know that the rest of us don't? Well, I don't know, but well, uh, Russia's about to invade mainland uh, USA. I think life's getting pretty exciting. Yes, quickly. Yes, so let's uh, let's finish off with with a couple of and finalies, Alex. Uh, this is a good cartoonist, Tim Cordell, who's been quite widely syndicated, and from. The start of February, he has a piece that has been quite widely shared. Um, where it's, uh, it's a couple, a middle-aged couple in bed, and from the style, uh, I think we're to understand that the uh, the gentleman there is a senior member of parliament, and uh, his wife is looking askance at him in bed as she reads her nighttime reading and says, darling, you would tell me if you were part of a deep state satanic cabal, wouldn't you? And uh, inspired by um, realist art from the Maoists' idiom, we now have, uh, we showed you some DC street art very similar with regard to Biden. Now from north of the border, we have uh, some art um, taking the rip out of Justin Trudeau's recent question on Quebec television, should we tolerate those people? Faut-il tolérer ces gens-là? Uh, so that's been turned into a rising sun chairman, Justin, quote, we will not tolerate those people with uh, the helmsman hands striding into the future. And a masked uh, group acclaims him underneath with slogans or such as obedience is liberating, your freedom is selfish, your body is not yours, join the regime. And front and centre is a framed uh, hagiographic icon of a syringe with a halo. Yes, brilliant. Excellent. OK, I think we'd better leave it there. Uh, Alex and Debbie, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much to our audience for joining us today. Once again, a very big thank you to all of the uh, French-English uh, um, linguists who've come forward to offer help. That's uh, very much appreciated. 
And uh, we're just going to say, think about the little interview clip with Dr. David Cartland there, because his bravery in speaking out now shows that we've got something very, very important starting to happen in the NHS. Many of the nurses have been fighting for some time to get the truth out. And now what are we seeing? We're starting to see uh, GPs and doctors coming forward. So well done to those people. Uh, back in a few minutes on uh, the main live stream for uh, some extra. Indeed. Thanks. Thanks for joining us. Bye bye. Bye.